working in these fields, working with nature has been huge catalyst to like healing in my life and figuring out who I am and finding my place and purpose and also being self-sufficient. I've always been like super drawn to feeling like I understand the world around me, like being able to identify a plant and knowing that I can eat it, like experiencing what it tastes like, knowing that I can dye something with it brings me this sense of self-sufficiency and in the same way that like I want to know how to repair my machinery or my vehicle like so yeah Paul and I connect on a lot of that we go for like rides in the gator and he'll be like oh have you ever tried this tree like this is prickly ash and we like eat it and numbs our mouth together we like go hunt for mushrooms like it's it's a huge gift Welcome to the Tangled Taproot, where we explore the unique stories of small-scale farmers in the Midwest. I'm Kristen. I'm John Cowan. And I'm Angel. And this is a production of Milk and Hummus. What is milk and hummus, you ask? We make flavorful hummus and ready-to-drink plant-based lattes that focus on locally sourced ingredients, sustainable packaging, and the humble chickpea. In this episode, we will talk with Aaron Luna, a farmer forager and artist of Black Rat Farms. She specializes in naturally dyed textiles and accessories, wild foraging, as well as a vast array of culinary and medicinal specialty herbs. Come along on the journey as we grow, gather, create, and explore with her. Yes, really excited to get into this episode. Me too. All right, one of the things that's really interested me about Erin was her role in the beverage industry. I mean, growing up, I always wanted to be a brewer. I thought that applied microbiology was just the coolest thing ever and was able to be an an intern at Shorts Brewing Company. It's an experimental uh, brewery up in Northern Michigan. And so when Erin was talking about how she utilizes or provides a lot of the foraged and grown, you know, culinary herbs for both Confluence Kombucha, uh, for William of Compliance Kombucha, as well as, I believe it's... Sandy Valley Brewing in Hillsboro. Yeah, yeah. And we should say Confluence Kombucha is in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, no, they uh, specialize both. I mean, on the NA side with kombucha and then the alcoholic side of uh, the spectrum for Sandy Valley, they're both specializing in experimental brews uh, featuring ingredients of the Ozark region. So think spruce tips. Calendula. Yeah. Marigolds, clary sage. Yeah. I know that Sandy Valley did a beer with the sage in the last couple months. Marigold uh, beer release is right. happening now. So that's, I mean, that's something that really imparts a unique uh, characteristic, hyper-local, if you will. <laughs> when you're drinking a beer or, or kombucha, that can be so much more of a, an experience. Yeah, it makes it kind of meaningful and brings like a personal connection especially if it's just kind of a almost a one-person show, one-woman show, if you will, because um, she farms for herself. So good for her. And that's we're talking foraging. Sometimes that can take a lot of hours and dedication to get enough poundage to help somebody brew something. Yeah, it adds a very personal component to a brew. I guess the, beyond the beverage-related ingredients she provides, her main focus is in natural dyeing for textiles and I think wool and silk are her primary materials that she that she focuses in on and learned a ton about the process. Yeah, that was kind of mind boggling. I'm sure all three of us felt pretty naive because that was a whole nother thing. While we did enjoy speaking with Jeff from the alpaca farm and learned a little bit about fibers then, this was as far as the color application and absorption and stick to and pre-fabric, pre-medium treatments that are required. That was all very much above our heads. Increased my appreciation for natural dyeing immensely. <laughs> I never thought it was easy, but a few hoops to jump through to be a successful. And I know where to learn about it now. I yeah. Could, <laughs> I could uh, go online, sign up for a class. So many class options. Yeah. Very exciting. Very tempting. Yeah. I think it's super cool. 
I think growing up or just being an everyday person, there are some like introductory dyes that natural dyes that seem more accessible, like, for example, turmeric or beet. I didn't know so much went into indigo. The whole process um, was, as you said, mind boggling um, to see how it gets from like point A to point Z, even as far as like understanding that the plants aren't like naturally blue in themselves too. Like the whole process that goes into it was super cool to learn. And yeah, I have a deeper appreciation for natural dyes and anyone who is able to create in that way. Yeah, I felt tricked almost that I'm like, wait, so indigo plants, we can't just easily spot them while we're walking through a garden or a forest. They're not screaming blue indigo colors. No, to do 87 things and then you'll see the color. Yeah, and, and and seeing what you have in your, I guess, in in your environments, what you can use in nature, understanding that people have been using these different plants and botanicals for millennia. millennia. Yeah, it's quite different than maybe you know when you're a kid tie dyeing something. Yeah, with like chemical mm-hmm. squirty bottles yeah. and stuff. <laughs> Whatever those artificial dyes are made out of, the fact that. She wasn't necessarily intentionally, you know, trying to focus on dying when she started out. It's kind of neat because it's almost kind of developed in parallel with her sort of farming efforts and investment as a way to weave in her natural artistic background and her fine arts education to bring this outlet of using her art artistry and and inspired passions to kind of manifest colors and learn this this dyeing process as a way to incorporate plants that she was already growing and also an expression of things it's it's like a really beautiful evolving yeah i mean she didn't grow up thinking i want to be um, involved with agriculture she was coming from the creative artistic side of things avoiding science actively so yeah. <laughs> Look what, look what happens. <laughs> yeah. Now she's like a botany enthusiast with uh, all sorts of artist skills. And to us uh, personally as a hummus company, we've used some of her delightful herbs as a component in several of our hummus seasonal flavors over over the last year or so. I would encourage any of you listening that if you are looking for a specialty culinary herb, if you if you dial into the interview, you'll hear a list of some of the fantastic varieties of of classic and maybe some more elusive herbs that she's growing that you might uh, be able to make use of um, that maybe you have trouble growing yourself. And she's been able to sell to a few other culinary and food situations as well as uh, area and regional herbalists uh, that are using some of the more medicinal uh, properties of some of the herbs, like such as milk milky oat tops yeah as one that i personally also use uh, to kind of relax my mind or anxiety racing thoughts so that's really neat that kind of ties into a naturalist herbalist yeah it's got care it's got health care on the radar now it's on the radar so looking forward to trying that excellent yeah that's like one of our cool side effect goals of this interview right as we're learning all sorts of things along the way. The herb that was most familiar to me was um, mugworth. I really enjoyed hearing her talk about it. I used it um, for my sleeping before because okay. um, I'm really interested in lucid dreaming and it oh. definitely does impact <laughs> your dreams. So it's really cool. Good. Yeah, I would be interested in trying that as well. That's on the, that's on the list. <laughs> Good to hear a like, firsthand experience. Do you happen to know, Angel? I feel like I read or was speaking with the herbalist where also if you have like mugwort like in an incense or the dried version if you kind of burn it and let it smoke a little bit into the room like the mugwort like that also helps contribute to the lucid dreaming do you know if it works in that capacity as well as ingestion or I'm just curious. That's so interesting. I don't know much about that. I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to that, but I would assume so. I think that, yeah, that's like another point of entry. Another sensory. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was just like, I feel like, well, I mean, I know I heard somebody talking about it, but then it's like vague and long enough ago where I'm like, did I hear that? And I just thought maybe you would know. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. 
And I love that she's also using the backyard in her at her house too to the farm property at Billows Creek. It's not quite enough, folks. She is. <laughs> she has no grass in her yard. <laughs> she is growing things that she can use and sell. So good for her. Yeah. And also, she rents land from Paul out in Hill. Mr. Paul Krautman. Out yeah. Of, uh, Hillsborough as well. Billows Creek, where Rachel Greathouse also is. Which we had the opportunity to ob- observe some of her growing space and land, as well as her hoop house that she uses to kind of jumpstart some of her herbal seedlings and other plants and her plethora of marigold varietals as well. Really beautiful space. Great land. One of the other things I appreciated about her interview was her openness and vulnerability to share about how how the time spent farming out on that land and that organic consistently organic over the decades, that property, how that's been a useful healing tool for herself as far as like being in nature, having calmness, quietude, beautiful scenery, and that it's just been a a healing source for her. There's a lot of benefits of an agrarian lifestyle and uh, she really expressed all those positive things. Yes. Inspiring. Now buckle up and get ready for the interview with Erin Luna from Black Rat Farms. My name is Erin Luna. Thanks, Erin. Thanks for coming today. Yeah. Joining us. For joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Tell us uh, about what you do. What the, what's the name of your spot? My spot. My container is what I call it. It's called Black Rat Farms. And it is a container to hold the many different things that I do that all are linked by my connection to nature, the natural world. So it includes my growing, my farming. It includes uh, gathering wild foods, foraging, and it also includes my creative practice of natural dyeing. Neat. That container is loaded with exciting things to talk about. It's full. (laughs) It's full. It's abundant. Yeah. About how big is your container? Like land-wise? Yeah. Sure. So I rent technically an acre of land in Hillsborough on the land of Bellews Creek Farm owned by Paul Krautman. But I only grow on about a third of it right now. So I'm growing at about a third of an acre. And then I also have access to a hoop house, an unheated greenhouse. Okay. Very nice. What type of things do you grow? Tell our listeners uh, a little bit about the variety and spectrum of herbs, flowers, um, what your uh, specialties are. Yeah. So I'd say like what I'm most known for growing would be natural dye materials. But they're like all things in nature. These plants are multi-purpose in a lot of instances. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I grow a lot of marigolds, but marigolds are also culinary, you know, and used in like herbal preparations. So I really would describe what I grow as just being like specialty crops. I grow small amounts of niche, higher dollar crops. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good description. Um, What would you say, like outside of the natural fabric dye realm, what is your most sought after kind of unique crop? Um, that's a hard question. Like, I mean, I grow lavender and I definitely had no problem moving through all the lavender that I grew. Last year I grew ginger, which I intended to grow again this year, but had a crop failure. And so I'm not. And that's another one that's like, you know, it's a highly sought after crop and you have no problem selling it. I'd say like what I'm I feel like I spend the most time trying to sell our marigolds. Like this year in particular, I literally have called myself a marigold peddler. Like I feel like I'm trying to sell marigolds to all these local small businesses, like Uh coffee shops and breweries and ice cream places, just trying to like spread the gospel of the flavor of marigolds and convince people that don't know that they want marigolds that they actually do. Yeah. So... (laughs) And it actual, worked for us. Right. And then <laughs> the actual part of the plant that people eat or use is the are the petals, right? Yeah. 
So I, is that why you said thing. why you pedal it? You're the marigold peddler. I did not make that. But P E T A L. I mean, I thought so. I connected. I was like, dang, the wit and the humor is on point. I will accept that, but honestly, no, it's unintentional. Love it. So, are you moving a lot of your product just kind of by word of mouth and chefs and business owners that? approach you and talk to their friends, et cetera, and reach out? Yeah, 100%. It's all connections made along the way. And there's been some businesses that I've like sought out specifically because I really think that my products would work well with what they do or I know that they work with. They already work with people that sell unusual natural products. So yeah, it's all been word of mouth and just connections here and there. Very good. How long have you been on this journey? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been growing on this land for two seasons now. This is my second year. I'd say that this stuff like originated inside of me many years ago, but it's kind of become its current expression just in the past two to three years. I've started really, it kind of started, I'd say in 2020, I grew a ton of starter plants and wanted to sell them. And I just sold them over the internet and like delivered to people. In 2021, I did the same thing, grew a ton of starter plants and got a booth at the O'Fallon Farmer's Market and started selling there. And then some weeks I would have a couple naturally dyed silk scarves there. Like, oh, also this. And it, as I started advertising, you know, at markets that I was doing natural dyeing, that kind of started to pick up. Like there was interest in that. And I got asked to take part in other like artisan markets. And then the growing on Paul's land kind of came from connections I made through artisan markets. And yeah, I'd say hopefully that's a clear synopsis of kind of how I got to this point. Yeah, the stepping stones along the way. Oh, yeah. So many stepping stones. So that creative side, did it originate from, let's say, fine arts and you went to U- University of Texas? Is that something you would say grew from that platform or is it something that grew more organically post-school? Post it's a great question. Yeah, I have been interested in creative arts since I was in high school. I was like an arts kid, you know, always I like didn't take any science classes to take like three arts classes my senior year. And then I studied fine arts at the University of Texas, graduated in 2016 and moved back to St. Louis where I'm from. I worked like I worked in a photo lab. I worked at the Contemporary Art Museum. I kind of like tried to dabble in the arts world, but didn't really like find footing And so I just went and worked retail for a few years and like wasn't really creating anything at that point. In 2019, I left my retail job and started working at a small farm. And just it was a huge moment of change in my life. Just a few months after I started working at the farm, I had this urge to experiment with dyeing fiber because I wanted to knit. And I was like, what if I also dyed it myself. Can this plant dye fiber? I don't know. I'm going to find out. And I just, it was experimental and intuitive. And I really didn't know anything about what I was doing. And I just was like playing, which is like huge. Like, I feel like all the work I do is like, it's kind of like me playing. Uh, There's a lot of like healing in that that happens. And so since I started experimenting with it, I have learned a lot. And now I actually know a little bit about what I'm doing when I do it. But yeah, that's... uh, how I started with the natural dyeing. That's fascinating. Yeah, really neat. Born of an adventurous curiosity. Like, that really cool how that kind of that route started for you. Yeah, it's, it's really an applied an applied science and, and getting that agricultural influence into your creative, like sort of emerging of those two is, is pretty cool. And people have been, of course, using natural dyes. That's the... The original right. color, I mm-hmm. guess. <laughs> Until the mid-1800s, everything was from natural materials. And then now, is it, it's mostly like petroleum-based. I know if, uh, printing, you know, printing packaging and most textile dyes are, are petroleum-based yeah. right now. Yeah, they're oil, petroleum-based. And uh, I guess there are some 
some drawbacks associated with 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 that? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's also just like the size of the industries and like a lot of other industries. It's not necessarily just like that the dye by itself would be detrimental to the mm-hmm. planet, but it's like the rate of consumption, how much is being produced, how much of these dyes are being dumped into waterways and ruining ecosystems, like people having to expose themselves to these chemicals as well, like working with them. It's a yeah. complicated And the number, number of things don't need to have permanent, permanent archival ink, so to speak, for, let's say, a, a box, a box, a shipping box. Uh, you know, you don't really have to have archival ink on a shipping box. You just need to have it be able to... Like a transient yeah. temporary need. So are you, you're working mainly with, with textiles. So yarn made of uh, various animal fibers. Yeah, wool yarn. Wool and silk are what I dye most. Where do you source those from? Is there a particular place or person or just kind of depends on availability? It kind of it? depends. Currently, I buy my yarn from a supplier in England. I would really love to buy local, but I can't really afford to at this point. Like, sure. yeah. It's really expensive and I feel like the yarn I sell is already has a really high price tag and I would have to like double or triple it if I sourced. The economics come locally. into play, yes. Yeah. But it's high quality. I'm able to buy small bulk orders and then silk I source from different places like I'll buy silk yardage from Etsy or like there's some online retailers that sell blanks it's like blank textiles for dyeing that are really well known and I'll buy like my silk scarves from them that I use in classes so no one place specifically just a handful of different retailers for materials like do you dabble in other found things like cotton to dye or is just wool and silk take on the natural plant dyes best yes. from your experience? Really? Yeah, okay. I do. I will dye like cotton bed sheets or like some thrifted items, but a wool and silk, it, it's interesting, like the plant-based dyes just have this affinity for protein fibers mm. more than they have for cellulose fibers. It's interesting. easier, wow. like... Before you dye a textile with natural materials, you have to pre-treat it with this technique that's called mordanting. Can you spell that, please? Yeah. M-O-R-D-A-N-T. Mordant. Okay. It's a French word, I think. Interesting. And basically, it just means you're pre-treating your fiber with a metallic salt, which is generally aluminum-based alum. Mm -hmm. It's really sounds kind of complicated, but it's just like making a tea with aluminum and simmering your fiber in it. And then the dye forms this chemical bond with the alum that has like enmeshed itself in the fibers. Do you have to use the mort, what is it again? Mordant? Yeah. <laughs> On the the protein fabrics that you prefer? Yeah. Protein-based? Okay. What do people do? Is that, is there a technique, a pre-treat technique that could help someone with the cotton cellulose dyeing, if that was their thing? Yes, there is. It's just a little bit, there's like an extra step. Okay. So it's just a little bit more complicated and there's more materials involved and more time when you're dyeing cellulose. With cellulose, usually you have to use something called a mordant assist. So it's like you have to first add this material, which is often tannin, to your fiber to help the mordant adhere to the fiber. So instead of a two-step process, it becomes three. And the tannin also will add this kind of like a dingy quality. It kind of dyes it a little bit like a beige. And so you also lose some of the vibrancy when you're dyeing it. And then what about the hold holding strength, I guess, if you will? Uh, but with, let's say the natural wool fiber with the dye, natural dye, are you able to have a strong, I guess, maintain a strong hue for a Wash, year? Like washes yeah. and right. dries? Yeah, it's or... a great question. And when you were talking about permanence, like that is something that I deal with constantly in this work um, because it is never permanent. Okay. 
a year, yeah, 100%. It also depends on what you're doing with this textile. So if I dye a t-shirt that you're going to wear out in the sun and you're going to put in the washing machine once a week, it's going to fade much quicker. I'd say you'd probably get a year before it starts to look like it needs to be dyed again. If it's like a knitted scarf, a table runner, I don't know, something that's not going to get as much wear and tear and isn't going to be washed as frequently, you're going to have a longer lasting color. And then the other part of the answer is that also different dyes have different shelf lives, or if you want to call it that. Yeah. So like indigo is probably the longest lasting dye. Oh, really? Yeah, it can take the most sun exposure the most washing, and it just lasts. And then the other ones that last a really long time would be tannin-based dyes. So not only do we use tannin as this mordant assist, a lot of natural dyes are actually, the dye is coming from tannins, like black walnuts and acorns. Those are tannin dyes, and those have a really long life, the color does. Indigo is more rare, isn't that correct? More rare in in nature, or is that not, or is there enough... I don't know what you want to call it, uh, botanicals that are blue in in the wild. The color blue is pretty rare in nature as far as like blue flowers. You know, they're, it's a rare color to see. And as far as getting the color blue as a dye, it really only truly comes from indigo bearing plants. Indigo itself is a chemical compound that's found in the leaves of different types of plants in different plant families all across the world. So it's fascinating, like the history of indigo, how different civilizations learned how to work with it, because it's also complicated. Most natural dyes are like you put them in a pot of water, simmer it, you see color in the pot, you put a textile in and it becomes that color. Indigo, for one, the leaves aren't blue, like when they're fresh, you can see it when they dry up, but you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at this plant that it contains indigo. But it also needs to be worked with differently. If you just simmered the leaves of indigo, you would not get a blue dye. Typically, indigo is fermented, and then it needs to be in an environment without oxygen to get the blue color to to be blue. So there's quite a, quite a bit of chemistry. Big process. 100%. Yeah. yeah. That's very science-loaded talk for the girl that skips science classes (laughs) to do art classes. Kind of wish I hadn't (laughs) skipped chemistry sometimes. tuned into botany 2.0 instead. (laughs) Wow. So indigo is like the plants that indigo can be located have different names besides just Japanese indigo or whatever, like I saw on your website. Yeah. Um, So do they all, are they named something indigo or is it? Uh, like a whole plethora of mysterious things. That's a good question. Most of them, their common names would be like, contain the word indigo in them. Okay. And some of their botanical, like Latin names also have indigo in there. But so like I grow Japanese indigo, which is a relative of buckwheat. It looks like smartweed. If you guys are familiar with that little weed that grows on the ground. Anyway, it looks exactly like it, but like, two feet tall instead of like a couple inches. I think that's that's the video you sent with the little uh, seed pods, maybe? Like the grass no, seed pods? I think that the indigo one's that like big flowery looking thing in your hand, right? And then the where you were removing the, the small little grain looking things from a stock. Those were, we have to know what that is. <laughs> yeah. Those Tell are milky more. oats. Oh, okay. That was are my guess. Are you guys guess. familiar with those? I, I'm not. Like no. as an herbal tincture, right? Yeah. It's like assist with stress relief Anxiety, or calming. depression. It's like a nerving, I think. Is, yeah, it's I might in the be nerving family. Yeah. yeah. Little little dabbling of herbalism here. <laughs> I That's part of the specialty crops thing. Like I've found yeah. that I can grow flowers and sell to florists. I can grow and gather medicinal plants and sell to herbalists. So I'm not an herbalist by any means. I know very little, but I do deal with a lot of medicinal plants for sure. So a few different a few different avenues. Yeah. So many. Things mm-hmm. you can eat, things you can color with. <laughs> Ginger. And I did notice something really fascinating. A bunch of spruce tips. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, spruce tell, tell me about, yeah, tell tell me about yeah, because I know 
when I was younger, I made a spruce beer, spruce dip beer in northern Michigan. Where do you where do you forage or gather the spruce dips from? Um. And what do you what do you do with them? <laughs> Well, where you don't I have this. to say specifically because it's like a forager's rule, right? You oh, can't say me. where, yes. but it's not like is I, it like near the farmland, relatively, I, or not near. I you could just be that vague all around the St. Louis area. Okay. It's not like Neat. because I would want it to be a secret, but like I don't know what foraging laws are everywhere, oh, sure. and so like it's not all on private you, land. You renegade. I mean, foraging. It's asked that of us, right? Yes. We don't all have private land to gather foods from. That's true. That's true. I wish we all were assigned some land. That would be nice. I'll take one. Me too. <laughs> the spruce tips, I, yeah, I sold to Confluence Kombucha this ah. year. And they made spruce tip kombucha. Okay. Yeah. Yes. That's a, a great application. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I wonder, if, I wonder if they I have some at their, uh, when was that? Brewery. Probably winter t- or when do when do those new shoots burst out? Early spring. Okay. I okay. don't know if they have any left, um, but I'm sure it'll be something that they have again sure. next year. Sure, it was wonderful. Intriguing. Yeah. And then I saw ginger. Is there a certain variety of ginger? Like is like that's good to grow. Like is it an American like oh. American ginseng or you know I know it's different than ginseng but I don't know the variety of ginger. So like to be honest when we grew the ginger that was 2 years ago like I said crop failure this year. We bought it from the grocery store and like sprouted oh, it. Oh, started at that. Yeah. Way. Wow. Um, but the difference is why it might look different when you grow ginger here and I hope I'm correct in saying this. I'm not an expert on all these things but it's technically called baby ginger when we harvest it because it's one year old and that's why it doesn't have skin on it. Oh. And it looks uh, like yellow and pink. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if it was allowed to stay in the ground a second year, that's when it develops the brown skin on it. And it has the same ginger flavor um, and is fascinating. Equally as sought after. And also, so you're saying that I can go to a store and get a piece, a nub of ginger and. and grow it sort of yes exactly oh, that's cool i didn't know that sometimes like i think that they might treat the ginger okay. with something that prevents it from sprouting but Very. if you buy organic ginger yeah. right ideally that makes sense yeah just like anything like a potato you can cut a potato up and grow sure a ton of potatoes from one yeah potato <laughs> magic it really is science <laughs> oh that's that's awesome did not know so you mentioned that you peddled your spruce tips off to Confluence Kombucha. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us about maybe a few other interesting or fun collaborations you've had the opportunity to be a part of? Yeah, for sure. I've been collaborating with this brewer named Kyle at Sandy Valley Brewing. He's located in Hillsboro, so like really mm-hmm. close to the farm. And he is really interested in doing creative original brews and it's just fascinating like where he's located with the demographic and he's trying to like push these really wild ingredients and I've sold him some really fun like off the walls kind of stuff so he makes a marigold beer that I really am a big fan of and he's done a black locust beer we did lilac he's bought a bunch of stuff from me The other one that I'm really excited about is that I started selling to Sugar Witch this year. Oh, congrats. Because I just was like, I feel like marigolds, I feel like you need them. Playful Um, enough to (laughs) party along with ice cream, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I think that they're so creative and doing really original things as well. So, yeah, when I get to taste like unusual flavors made with things that I grew or gathered with my hands that is like that's it for me that's the goal of all of this and it just like brings me so much joy and for those who are not aware marigolds are are different hues of yellow and orange right predominantly yeah some red some reds very yeah. cheery. Yeah. There's different types, African and French marigolds, and they have this really distinct aroma that some people hate. It's kind of like divisive. I love it. It's like spicy and pungent and I don't know. Yeah. Mm. I'm obsessed with them. And so Sh- Sugar Witch is using them in a, a, a sandwich? Yeah. They've done 
They did a marigold soda first where they make a simple syrup and then mix it with Topo Chico. Ooh. It's really refreshing. And then just like this week, they released one of their new sandwiches that is chocolate marigold cookie with blood orange ice cream in the middle. That's It's really good. You should definitely eat one. Sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned a black locust. Is that a tree? Is it a fruit from a tree? Is it a plant flower? I'm... I feel like that's something I should know, but I'm embarrassed to say I'm not sure what I that is that love you sold. To tell you. Okay. Yeah. Um, one of the photos I sent you is that it's like the white flowers. Oh, the white flowers. Okay. Yep. So black locust is a tree. It's a, kind of just like a weedy tree that grows around St. Louis. It's everywhere. It's on the side of the highways. It is, if you can see that. Beautiful. The black locust. Oh, wow. So, yeah, they grow all over the place. They spread, they like form little colonies, and they are a legume. So like it's like a pea-type flower. Wow. Oh, interesting. And they smell amazing. Actually, I've just like read some people talk about black locust, and there's like such poetry in the way people talk about the way they smell. The first time that I became aware of them, I was actually driving down the highway during their bloom time, which is like two weeks in May. And I smelled them. Like, I just, like, the smell wafted into the car. And I had this curiosity and desire. Like, I have to know what that is. I have to go find it. Yeah. And they're also edible and taste amazing. They taste like great must, musk. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. which one of those must, it is. Like the skin? Is that what yeah. the must is? They're floral and grapey and just absolutely delicious. So it was the black locust flowers that you sold to Sandy Valley yeah. for a brew? Yep. I sell those to Confluence as well. They're one of my favorite things to sell. So both uh, an NA version and uh, an alcohol version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Week, week yeah. night and weekends and right. <laughs> something for everyone. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask you what these lovely things are. Straw flowers. Straw flowers. Okay, that was going to be my guess. I should have tooted my horn. Dang. You got it. <laughs> um, what are they used for? Decoration. Okay. They're just a pretty flower, and yeah. they're a really great flower to dry as well. So, They make lovely garland, right? Yes. People like braid them into garlic braids sometimes, okay. and they just hold. They don't look real. I don't know if you've ever seen them in yeah, real life. they have like an artificial look. 100%. They're very cool. Yeah, I've been trying to kind of like dabble in with selling to florists a little bit. And so I did end up selling those to a florist. And Is that something that you kind of have growing at the farm container for spring and summer? Or do they kind of die off midsummer? Or? Straw flowers? I just harvested those this week, actually. Okay. Yeah. Late summer, I would say, is when they're like fully blooming. Neat. Yeah. Would you say you use a lot of flowers such as these for for, for natural dyes or not so much? I do use a lot of flowers for natural dyes. I don't use straw flowers, though. You might be able to. Like, the list of natural dye materials is infinitely long. So, So an item could be a dual source, could be both used for a floral arrangement as well as a dye? Yeah, like marigolds. You could sell them to florists. You can sell them to brewers. Even like certain types you could sell to herbalists, like calendula is mm. a marigold. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I wondered if they were connected. Wow. Yeah. They're also a dye plant. Like so many purposes. And you can use it in soap without it turning brown because it won't react with the caustic, which is which is nice. That's why a lot of people use it in soaps because it retains that so you see the little color. yellow yeah. petal yeah. mm-hmm. And is edible as well? Calendula? Uh, uh, yeah. Calendula is medicinal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. I don't know what it's used for, though. I think it's, I've got, it's in a lot of skin salves that I've got for like some of my <laughs> kitchen burns and yes. scratches and such. I think it increases our epidermis healing turnover, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. Again, not professional speaking here. Fascinating. Yeah. And so tell us about your classes because I know you're doing a lot of those in in different parts of the city. Yeah. 
I started teaching natural dyeing like last year. Really haven't been doing it for that long. And there seems to be a lot of people that want to learn about natural dyeing in St. Louis. So I teach at Perennial in South City. I teach at Craft Alliance, teach at Bowood Farms. I teach at the Botanical Garden. And I, I will really seek out any opportunity that comes my way. I will like check it out and see what it holds. I'm going to teach a group of high school students oh, cool. um, in a couple weeks. And that's a new one for me. So Are they kids that are science-focused or art-focused or both or random or just a... I think I'm we're like nature-focused. They're yeah. camp counselors at a camp in Missouri. So it's kind of like a retreat for them that we're doing. And then I also do... I do some of my own like self-facilitated events as well, usually just like one to two a year. And so I have one at the end of September where I'm going to invite people to come to the farm where I work, where I grow and like show them what I do there, you know, like pull the curtain back a little sure. bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're also going to do some dyeing while we're out there and have snacks and drinks. What date is that event, Aaron? September 24th. Okay. It's coming Sunday. up. It's yeah. coming up. Excellent. I'm collaborating with Kyle, the brewer I mentioned. He's going to release the Marigold beer that day. Collaborating with my friend who makes delicious drinks. They're going to make some botanical beverages. Sounds lovely. Yeah, it sounds like a good... Multifaceted good therapeutic event. Plus yeah. you get to be outside. So yeah. exactly. winner, winner. Tell us a little bit about what is bundle dyeing? How is bundle dyeing different from some of the the tea, boil, soak methods like yeah. you mentioned? So there's different ways of working with dye materials. The hot water immersion where it's just like putting dye materials in water and boiling it is probably the most basic. You can also work with your dye materials by basically applying them directly to your fiber. So in bundle dyeing, you have your pre-treated fiber, mordanted, and you arrange your dye materials, whether they be fresh flowers, dried flowers, pressed flowers, like ground up powders, whatever it is. You arrange them on your textile in a pattern or just like organically, randomly. You roll your textile up really tightly into a little bundle or like a cinnamon roll is how I describe it often. Put it in a steamer like you would steam broccoli or anything else. Leave it in there for about 30 minutes. And then when you pull it out, you have this like printed, it's kind of more like printing yeah. dye materials on okay. your fabric. Wow. That's pretty neat. Huh. But yeah. So do you need to leave leave the heat on to continue the steam through that 30 minutes or you start the steam, put your product in and then kill it no you leave it on okay yeah natural it's like an infusion but indirect not submerged right natural dyes need moisture and heat to adhere with the exception of indigo but we'll leave that out moisture and heat are always needed in some way heat okay yeah can you ever use a an an iron as like a yeah a uh, method yes you can also I guess sometimes people call this eco-printing. There's all these like names for these techniques. Um, Eco-printing is often what they're referring to is where you use a hammer and you pound. It's also called like flower pounding, I guess. You pound the dye materials into your fiber and then you set them afterwards with heat, with an iron. So it's like a controlled grass stain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) An intentional grass intentional, day. yes. <laughs> Kids right. have been plant pounding since, <laughs> <Right. laughs> since the beginning of time, <laughs> playing outside and ruining clothes. Awesome. <laughs> oh, um, I mean, I, we kind of know about some of the herbs you grow because we've been happy to utilize and feature some of your deliciousness in our hummus. I just wondered if you could kind of tell people some of the varieties that you offer, like culinary wise, or that might just bring some inspiration or. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, what I'm growing this year, obviously, do you want me to just like kind of do the whole list, like all of it? Sure. I mean, let's hear it. Yeah. Okay. Do it. (laughs) Okay. So, dye wise, I've got matter root, 
marigolds, sulfur cosmos, coreopsis, safflower, I'm a Japanese indigo. And then outside of the dye world, I have different types of specialty basil, like lemon basil, Thai basil, holy basil or tulsi, cinnamon basil, borage, lemongrass, rosemary, lavender, eucalyptus, clary sage, mugwort. I think that's it. I mean, I have like, I grow like lemon balm at my house too and the milky oats i forgot about those sorry what are milky oats i'm out of the loop there yeah milky oats i will preach the gospel of milky oats Uh, they are the immature seed head of an oat plant so when you eat oatmeal Mm -hmm. i think i'm correct in this you're eating like the seed or whatever Mm -hmm. of an oat plant the oat but milky oats are when you harvest them when they're green and when you squeeze them milk this like white latex stuff like comes out and they're highly medicinal and oat straw is really good medicinally as well kind of like similar effects on the nervous system but the milky oats is like really where it like packs the punch so yeah I've grown those the past two years and I love them I just started giving them to myself this year that's like something that I've also had to work better on is like I'm growing a lot of these things and gathering it and then I'm not consuming it myself like i'm selling gourmet products and eating ramen for dinner you know like ah, the irony <laughs> but this year i've made it a real goal to change that and so i've also been like making some herbal medicines for myself and taking them and milky oats uh, have become like you call it like a plant ally like mm-hmm. this like plant that i have befriended and i'm really enjoying like working with milky oats it helps me so yeah. and then also what's mugwort yeah that's, that's, tell us about that that's a fun name name yeah mugwort is that something harry potter grows i thought also? so i don't yeah. know botanical <laughs> magical worlds uh, <laughs> welcome like, to mugworts right i don't know the botanical name is artemisia it's related to wormwood oh. so wormwood is an artemisia as well like same family and it's a medicinal herb used in teas and mostly what it's used for has to do with like sleep. People will use it to induce like lucid dreaming and oh, that's right. Okay. Love, kind of this like that. magical More. sleep dream herb basically. More like vivid imagery and more active. Take take active notes. Sleeping. That sounds awesome. And then I heard cinnamon too is supposed to do something to dreams too. Maybe hopefully not scary dreams, but Maybe a combination of the two. Sounds soul warming. Yeah, sounds like it would taste good too. That's good to know. And you said it's related to wormwood. Yeah. Oh, okay. And for our listeners that might not be raising their eyebrows, wormwood is classically or traditionally used in the distilling process in absinthe. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. Like a licorice flavor, anise flavor? I think that's what I've heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mugwort is less like that, more just like earthy, bitter flavor. I think in absinthe, like wormwood is like the ingredient that is like responsible for the the rumors or the tales, like the green fairies. Yeah, yeah the exactly. Green fairy hallucinations <laughs> yes. or incurred disengagement from your body. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I feel like I've read something. I mean, slightly off track. I feel like I've read something in the last three to ten years that said like absinthe places aside from maybe one or two in Europe no longer use wormwood or they use a different variety or there's some some sort of change that has happened that's like slightly swayed from tradition I don't know so I'm talking like this will all be cut out I'm sure but like I feel like I read something like it's not present or present in a different form or I don't know. Is wormwood like illegal? I feel like there's some kind of like legal controversy around it. That could be be it. Like maybe only the absinthe that is imported into the U.S. to absinthe bars or the few unique bars that do serve absinthe in their drinks or as a feature. Like it might be allocated a different way or brewed slightly different than just if you're in Europe, what you might get from an absinthe distiller. I don't know. I wish I knew more. Maybe yeah. similar to, to poppies. 
Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of. Some poppies can gray, produce a zone. opiate mm-hmm. and some are more secretive. There's so many plants like that. I was just having a conversation before here. I came here about sassafras being the same way. Like Really? Sassafras, sassafras tea, that's all I, I'm familiar with, right? Sassafras tea? Yeah. Sassafras, it's, it's root beer. It's root beer, right? It's the main. Traditionally. Okay. Yeah, the roots. But yeah, so what's people... the rebellious side? Is there something dirty about sassafras <laughs> we should know? Controversial, yeah. Oh, rated R. So I love sassafras. I think it tastes amazing, but there's a narrative in our country that it's carcinogenic and the FDA, I think, has ruled it, like classified it as carcinogenic. And I think it's illegal to like sell sassafras leaves or something like that. But there's all these, it's a gray area. Like filet powder used to thicken gumbo is also made with sassafras leaves and like that's legal somehow. Maybe because of culture and tradition in the South. I mean, you know, but Maybe. it's like, but sassafras has probably been growing naturally wildly for, for a long time. Oh, yeah. It's a native plant. There's, I think I'm correct in this, but like Christopher Columbus like knew that he was near America because he could smell the sassafras. Sassafras was like a huge export out of America for years in like colonial times or like for beverage use or just medicine uh, medicine oh okay. i think they made this medicine so called like salute <laughs> what is the benefit why does the fda want us to not have it okay it's not a benefit but or effect. it's like a precursor so there's a chemical in sassafras called saffron that is really what they say is carcinogenic only in california saffron is a precursor to something that's used to make like mdma or something like that which oh. is which is beneficial or MDA. I don't know which one. I don't know stuff about this, but it all comes back to that. Those like the poppies, you know, wormwood. But I mean, I know around here, I mean, we've seen sassafras in culinary herb combinations for like poultry and, and other things too. So I know that I think the Missouri blend has sassafras in it. Oh, that sounds familiar. But uh, could be, could be wrong. Like from Wine Creek mm-hmm. Farms. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The salt blend or Yeah, seasoning? it's like got a bunch of Missouri native materials, like spice bush and thought, something yeah, or spice berries. There, and it, I don't know forged. what the Sumatic. legality is. Like, I just know that it's controversial. Like, if you take people on a guided hike and you tell them, like, now we're going to eat a sassafras leaf, there's always going to be somebody in the group that's like, wait, that's carcinogenic. Like, we're not supposed to eat that. And that's where there's just like this. Tomato smile. Then you can also just be like, you know, raw milk discussion too, or it's your, your body, your choice. Yeah. You're only affecting yourself. So True. make an informed decision. Do your research. Eat at your own risk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's Interesting. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And the Christopher Columbus nugget of information, <laughs> that historical thread is truly... When I was a, really a kid, I, I read this, I don't know, it was a, a Native American plant book, sort of culinary, sort of herbs, but it was uh, sumac, and you can make sumac tea, and I found the sumac berries, made a tea, and it was, you know, very lemony and astringent, but flavorful. Have you ever tried sumac? Yeah, soup? I love sumac. Yeah. It's, isn't there something controversial with sumac too? While we're talking about no, weird things, like, there's, isn't there there's saying like you sumac. can poison? There is a poison. It's sumac. a different. Okay, it's a different, totally different. Uh, I don't know if it's totally different. But it's like a vine, I think. Whereas like staghorn sumac, which is where you get the berries from, is more of like a a tree, a shrub. Yeah, I think it's like citric acid is what is that, oh. it tastes like. Mm-hmm. It's also a dye. Oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> also, wow. The leaves of the sumac plant are high in tannin and are often used by natural dyers. Like instead of buying tannin powder to pre-treat your cellulose, you can go out and cut sumac leaves and make it extra natural. Exactly. Can you also pour in like a high tannic bottle of wine to pre-treat? That's a great question. So (laughs) some tannins have color to them and some tannins are clear. And when we're pre-treating, we usually want to use a clear tannin so that we don't, like, dye our fiber. We're just trying to pre-treat it. It's like same with black walnuts. They're high in tannin, but they would turn our fabric, like, dark brown. 
then you wouldn't be able to see any of the neat, colorful nuances that you've worked so hard to boil and extricate. Exactly. So where can people find out where these classes are? Uh, more about what you're up to, where you're going to be, your projects, et cetera. Yeah. I use Instagram a lot, at Black Rat Farms, just all one word strung together. Ooh, sorry. Let me pause you. I wanted to ask what the inspiration was behind the, the name. Yeah. I don't have a great answer story for that. I I like animals. I like what they represent. I really like the black rat snake. I think that there's this kind of like mystery. Have you guys like, have you seen a black rat snake like out in the woods ever? Mm-hmm. Stumbled I across have, yes. one. They're all over the place here. They're big. They have this like power to them, but they're a harmless snake. They're not venomous. And they also like they eat rodents. They eat rats, which is why they're called that. So they're historically like a friend to farmers. But I just kind of like their like spirit. I like the powerful mystery of them. But ultimately, they're like kind of just like friendly and not scary. I'm a fan. Absolutely. I just think they're kind of like, like protects. They're kind of almost like guardians of the farm land. Yeah. So it's Farmer like friends. maybe like a spirit animal type thing. Uh-huh. and Okay. Yeah. That makes complete sense. <laughs> Thanks. Very cool. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So go ahead and tell us about your online presence in your shop and how people can get plugged into some of your plant empowerment. Yeah. So really right now, I mostly just operate on Instagram. My handle is at Black Rat Farms. And I do have a website, blackratfarms.com. I am not the best at keeping it updated with like my class lists, but there are ways to contact me on the website. And I also, like I mentioned, teach at this handful of places. So you can look at Missouri Botanical Gardens, Class Offerings, Craft Alliance, Perennial STL, Bowood Farms. And like if you search my name or look up any natural dyeing classes, you'll find me that way too. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I'll be doing one market this year. I've really kind of this year have been so engrossed in like farming and doing and working that I haven't been producing as much. I've really only been dying when I'm teaching classes. And so I haven't been doing artisan markets like I used to in years past, but I'll be doing one and it'll be at the Print Bazaar um, on Cherokee Street, December 2nd. And I'll be at Flowers and Weeds selling naturally dyed goods that have also been block printed by my friend. So On the 2nd of December? Yes. Okay. I think it's a Saturday. And it's like all of Cherokee Street. That's has, like the it's biggest the print bazaar that happens annually, right? Yeah. It's, it's a big deal. It's an amazing For St. Louis event. and St. Louis artisans. Yeah. Yeah. Like hundreds of artists to shop from so that'll be a good time excellent yeah Yeah. it's my favorite market of the year so and some wise holiday shopping could easily be accomplished perhaps uh for people that might go to that market very good and are you a one-person operation largely aaron i am yes wow (laughs) yeah listen to that i would love to have more help i'd say that's actually like the biggest struggle right now in doing what i'm doing is that it is so challenging to work outside of this, make a living and commit basically to like a part to full-time job doing the farming and foraging and teaching. It's just, I don't know how to find yet like the help that I need. Like somebody that's really passionate, likes hard, sweaty work and also like doesn't really care to make a ton of money doing it, so... I'm intrigued. For those listening, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for those listening, check out my website and email me. Perfect. A lovely person to be around, so that would be a side benefit. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate that, and it was really fun coming along in the little botanical and growing, creating, and dying journey with you, which sounds kind of like a life cycle if we say dying. Sure, but sure. That's D-Y-E, folks. There's lots of dying puns for sure. Oh. <laughs> yeah. We like, we like puns, so. How did you find your way to land to use? Because we all know that's kind of like a premium and difficult to find and maybe not affordable and within driving distance of St. Louis. 
Yeah. Tell us more. Sure. Yeah. So I had known that I wanted to kind of like expand. I'd been growing in my backyard for a couple of years and I briefly rented an LRA lot in the city, which a lot of like local city farmers do. Had a really hard time with it. Never even really broke ground, if you will. Like I didn't have water access or anything. And then the next year I found the opportunity to grow on Paul Krautman's land. And so in 2019, just a few months after this like huge shift that I talked about where I started working at a farm and naturally dying, I took a farm trip, a field trip during the winter, and we toured Bellows Creek Farm, uh, Paul's land. And just being there, I was completely enthralled by who he is and his land. Like Paul is this creative jack-of-all-trades, like the most self-sufficient person that I've ever met. And I, he like caught a cardinal in his hand the first time I was there. And I just was like, who is this person? And like, how do I... Summoning nature. Yeah. How do I get here? How do I spend more time here and like learn from him? And that was 2019. And then it wasn't until 2020 too when I started farming there. So like a few years passed and I found out through a friend that there was this opportunity to lease land at his place. I think he had advertised through like Known and Grown that he was leasing acre tracts of land, like $100 a month, crazy cheap, access to all of his equipment, which he has like, I mean, tractors from the 70s that he maintains and repairs. And like, because it was that land, that is what sold it for me. Like, I I was just like, I need to be there. I don't know what I'm going to do there, but I need this opportunity. And so in a lot of ways, Paul is like this, like a fatherly figure in my life at this point and a mentor. He helps me fix my truck. Like, we have worked on creative projects together. He lets me use his wood shop. Like, I camp out there. It's just like... It's so nurturing and healing to my soul to spend time on his land. And sometimes I'm just there and I just feel so in awe that like I have this opportunity because I live in the city and I'm used to being like sardines, you know, like surrounded by noise and people, people, and maybe too many people (laughs) and all that comes with that. And to have this like open space and quiet and peace and feel like I can exist in my full expression without like being watched or judged is like insane. It just literally brings tears to my eyes sometimes when I'm just like, I feel the weight of like the opportunity. So it's been like the biggest blessing to be out there and know him. And wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. What a great opportunity. And I, I definitely would personally also say nature is one of the best therapeutic tools that has helped me through some difficult times. So yeah, being able to kind of es- escape to a quiet, beautiful place is uh, just so useful. Yeah, and we were actually fortunate enough to to meet Paul and talk with him a few weeks, a couple weeks back. Yeah, which was which was pretty awesome. Fascinating fellow for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Jack of all trades seems like an appropriate description. Yeah. Yeah. I find a lot of like to go back to what you were saying, working in these fields, working with nature has been huge catalyst to like healing in my life and figuring out who I am and finding my place and purpose and also being self-sufficient. I've always been like super drawn to feeling like I understand the world around me. Like Being able to identify a plant and knowing that I can eat it, like experiencing what it tastes like, knowing that I can dye something with it brings me this sense of self-sufficiency. And in the same way that like I want to know how to repair my machinery or my vehicle, like so, yeah, Paul and I connect on a lot of that. We go for like rides in the gator and he'll be like, oh, have you ever tried this tree? Like this is prickly ash and we like eat it and numbs our mouth together. We like go hunt for mushrooms. Like it's it's a huge gift. A major immersion and yeah, just a, a cool like partnership and an interesting role that he's played yeah. for you. 
Very cool, for sure. Thanks for sharing. That's, sure. That's, that is nice. It's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the great questions. Fun conversation. Yeah, I hope it was pleasant for you too. Super enjoyable. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Our thanks again to Erin Luna of Black Rat Farms. Uh, you can find her events and offerings and classes through her website at blackratfarms.com. You can also reach out to her on social media at Black Rat Farms. No spaces there. Again, uh, this is Tangled Taproot, a production of Milk and Hummus. I'm Kristen. I'm John Cowan. And I'm Angel. If you like what you heard, please like, share, review us, uh, send us a message. Let us know what you've enjoyed or if there's a certain farm or grower that you'd like us to feature. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for tuning in. Tangled Taproot at milkandhummus.com. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>